Ambition is the degree to which we desire to achieve, the opposite of which is described with the term lazy. To a large degree, modern-day society thinks like Thomas Carlyle, who said, I've got a great ambition to die of exhaustion rather than boredom. As a society, we largely praise ambition as a major factor for success and chastise those in society whom we deem as lazy or unambitious. Those who know me wouldn't ever claim that I'm lazy, but they do occasionally apply the word unambitious to describe me. That's because I find that I am often content in this world, satisfied with the hand that I'm holding and thus finding no reason to either fold it for the next round or to bluff my way to a better hand. Can a person be both content in their life while remaining incredibly ambitious? Two people come to mind. First, the fictional star of Titanic, Jack Dawson, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who seems happy with his life while simultaneously sailing to the land of opportunity, and secondly, our subject, Louis XIV. Interestingly enough, both men also wanted to be king of the world. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the fourth in a series of five regarding Louis XIV, the Sun King's foreign policy. Niccolò Machiavelli warns us that men rise from one ambition to another. First, they seek to secure themselves against attack, and then they attack others. When Louis took over France at the youthful age of 13, he was keenly aware of the dangers that his kingdom faced. After all, France wasn't too far removed from the Hundred Years' War, which were almost entirely fought on their home soil. Nor was the nation so far distant to have forgotten the danger that Henry II and his son, Richard the Lionheart, had presented to the kingdom. While French bedtime stories surely told of the glories of Charlemagne, the king's private tutoring lessons would have reinforced the dangers to the French state. In the 17th century, it was the Austrians, with their disgusting inbred jaws, that were most often presented to the French as the boogeyman, looming as large as an iceberg on a collision course with a cruise ship. Cardinal Mazarin, Louis's chief advisor who also wore the hats of his godfather as well as the man secretly dating the king's mother, wrote in 1646 about the need to expand France's outer boundaries in order to secure the nation from attack. He claimed that it was necessary to seize the Spanish-led Netherlands, Lorraine, and Alsace in order to form a defensive bulwark for the city of Paris. This desire for a buffer zone would continue through to the modern age, as Paris sits uncomfortably close to the borders of France's historic enemies without any natural defenses. Mazarin whispered to the king that weakness invites enemies. 
Despite the nudges, it was only after Mazarin passed away that Louis began to pursue an expansionist foreign policy. The justification for Louis' invasion of the Netherlands in 1667 was a claim that the rights to the land had devolved to him by rights of marriage to the Spanish Habsburgs Maria Theresa. Spain had never managed to fully pay off the queen's extensive dowry. Rather than invalidating the marriage, it meant that Louis didn't need to abide by the renunciation of the rights to the throne portion of the marriage contract. The time was right for a preemptive strike. Sitting on the Spanish throne at the moment was Maria's genetically twisted four-year-old half-brother, Charles the Bewitched. Louis was exceptionally cautious in the build-up to his first official war. He negotiated with the Portuguese, who were attempting to break away from Spain at this moment, as well as the Dutch, who had been a historical ally of the French people. While neither agreed to join his side, they appeared to give him the green light for what Louis deemed to be more of a voyage rather than an invasion. Small skirmishes occurred as the French sauntered towards the Netherlands and within three months had isolated Flanders and its capital city of Lille. The entire expedition was a bit too successful as European courts began to worry at what Louis' ease at dispatching the historic power of the Spanish Habsburgs might mean for them. The Dutch were the impetus for the sea change, in European opinion regarding the threat posed by the Sun King. Although they had been allies with France and had been consulted by Louis prior to the invasion, they began to openly wonder if Spain had been a better neighbor to have around than the ultra-ambitious Sun King. Suddenly, their own buffer zone had been reduced to nothing, and they began to worry that they might be next eagerly seeking out a role to play in the newly conquered Netherlands. For Louis, the Dutch arrived on the scene too late. Although he had originally offered to split the land with them, he had done all of the work, and thus in his mind believed that he had earned all of the spoils. Scorned, the Dutch ambassador announced to the world that the Sun King devours countries in his never-ceasing quest for a universal monarchy over all of Europe. The claim launched a wave of francophobia across the continent. In order to prevent a unified European monarch, the Dutch turned to England whom they had literally just been waging war against. English monarch Charles II entered into negotiations with both sides, but ultimately settled on a deal with the Dutch to form the Triple Alliance with Sweden. In 1668, the new alliance publicly announced its desire to force France to give back the majority of the land that it had thus far acquired. Louis was unfazed by their efforts to counterbalance him. He set out personally with the troops to gain as much territory as he could before strategically agreeing to a peace treaty in March of 1668. The war had earned France 12 cities, including Lille. 
the treaty was always meant to be a ceasefire in Louis's mind, as he expected to utilize those 12 newly gained cities as the launching pad for his next war, one designed to punish the Dutch for their double cross. Shifting alliances make this particular era of European history quite confusing. For instance, the English entered into an alliance to rescue Spain's territories within the Netherlands from the French in 1668. Yet England, under Oliver Cromwell, had fought the Spanish for control of the commercial high seas in a brutal six-year war which had just ended the year prior in 67. During that conflict, England had momentarily been allied with France in order to seize Flanders. Now, a mere one year later, England had joined with the Dutch, whom they had also been previously at war with to defeat the French, who had taken the land from Spain, which ten years earlier England had encouraged the French to take from Spain. England had additionally signed a French treaty alliance a decade earlier under Oliver Cromwell. That treaty allowed France to concentrate its military on land, totally comfortable with the fact that England would go on to dominate the seas. The alliance had been signed in 1657, with Cromwell dying in 1658. The Stuarts, upon being restored to the English throne, maintained the treaty obligations related to France. The two men, after all, were cousins, and Louis had paid for Charles' living expenses during his exile. The families were also tied together through marriage, as Louis's brother, affectionately known by the court as Monsieur, married Charles' sister. The marriage brought the two monarchs ever closer, despite the fact that Monsieur was as close to openly gay as one could be within the medieval world. His birth gender seemed to be in question from the beginning, with his mother referring to him as my little girl and the silliest woman who ever lived. As he grew older, he would show up to parties in female gowns. Historian Philip Manzel references an anonymous court official who observed that Monsieur applies himself only to looking beautiful and to dancing with ladies in contrast to the king, his brother, who is courageous and virile. He is all the more effeminate and more like a woman than a man, as can be seen by his cheeks, which are red thanks to a certain artificial color, and for the most part filled with little black beauty spots. Manzel concludes that Louis's little brother reacted to the Sun King's displays of male vitality by exaggerating his own femininity all the more. Charles's sister found her place within the court, however, and became a beloved figure in the Sun King's court. She even produced children, but soon rumors formed that the king must have been the one who impregnated his sister-in-law. Charles's residency in France was a liberating experience for the young man, but the habits that he brought back with him shocked the traditional English court, resulting in him earning the moniker of the Merry Monarch. Debauchery was the de facto policy of his English court, 
with one man claiming at the time that the king and court were never in the world so bad as they are now for gaming, swearing, whoring, and drinking, and the most abominable vices that ever were in the world, so that all must come to naught. Samantha Contry notes that Charles's 25-year reign was marked by battles with Parliament, constant money worries, dubious alliances with his French cousins, a debauched court, not to mention the ever-present threats of bubonic plague, smallpox, and syphilis. His reign took in the Great Fire of London and a period known as the Little Ice Age, when temperatures plummeted across Europe. The constant pressures and distractions led him to sign in secret the Treaty of Dover with Louis XIV in June of 1670. The deal would once again flip England to France's side against the Dutch, who had annoyed the French for their own prior penchant with flipping. For the betrayal, Charles got what he needed more than anything else, a yearly pension of £230,000 and a promise that France would send him up to 6,000 troops if he ever faced a rebellion at home. In exchange, England agreed to send 60 warships and 4,000 troops to aid in the resumed Franco-Dutch War. As a cherry on top, Charles, the head of the Church of England, agreed to convert to Catholicism at some point in the future. The secret treaty managed to stay private for nearly 100 years. The invasion began in 1672, with the French forces quickly crossing into the Rhineland. The defense had been referred to by historians with unpleasant descriptors, including irrational, desperate, and hopeless. The British came to fight but proved ineffective, with the Dutch able to maintain their superiority over the seas. Louis brought in his own reinforcements, raising the size of his army to a previously unheard of 120,000 men-at-arms. Again, progress towards the goal of a universal European monarchy was being made, which terrified the watching European nations. Louis's prior incursion had resulted in the formation of a triple alliance, which stood staunchly against his interests. This time, a quadruple alliance formed, with the Austrian Habsburgs, Prussia, and Spain coming to the rescue of the Dutch. Despite this, France was able to maintain an upper hand throughout the war and arranged for a separate treaty with each individual force that had arrayed against it. Spain gave up most of Flanders, including border fortresses that would better ensure the safety of Paris. The Habsburgs and Prussians gave up their claims to Lorraine, as well as other disputed territories, to Sweden. Flanders was already culturally French, but now Louis owned one of the richest and most densely populated provinces in Europe. The war had been good for Louis's morale. Manzel reminds us that on campaign, the king changed his habits, 
He talked and gave money to soldiers, and every evening had fifteen or twenty officers over for dinner. The king became thin and suntanned, spending half an hour each day in front of the mirror arranging his mustache with wax. In his memoirs, Louis reveals his belief that a well-brought-up heart is difficult to content and can only be fully satisfied by glory, but also this sort of pleasure overwhelms it with happiness by making it believe that it alone was capable of the undertaking and worthy to succeed. The Sun King finishes his thought with the introspective line that glory is not a mistress which can be neglected. The war had made it crystal clear that France was without a doubt the strongest military power within Europe's borders. It also began the steady decline of the Dutch commercial empire and sparked lifelong rivalries between Dutch leader William III and Leopold I of Austria. The men opposed to Louis would never forgive the Sun King for the crimes against humanity that his troops committed during the conflict. Early in the war, Louis preferred sieges to actual battles, often either bombing or starving the enemy into submission. His reasoning wasn't because he cared about limiting his own forces' casualty rates. Rather, he enjoyed the glory that came with being welcomed into a city which had finally agreed to open their gates and join him. The fake cheers from doomed people was enough to tickle the pleasure centers that Louis the Narcissus needed to keep going. Around 1672, however, Louis expanded his goals regarding the submission of cities to the subjugation of entire countries. He ordered his troops to unleash a reign of terror with his generals burning entire villages. His own generals warned him against the violent acts, telling him afterwards that it was because of these war crimes that they had lost the domination of Europe in exchange for its hatred. In Zwammerdam and Bodegraven, 2,000 houses were burnt with their residents remaining trapped inside. Austria denounced Louis as a monster of the apocalypse, an enemy of the human race, and deemed him as the new Attila. Despite the charges levied against him, the French-led onslaught continued, with more than 100 villagers being burnt while barricaded within a church in Arseille. None of these actions were reported by the press at home, where Louis was dealing with unrest due to artificially high taxes, which paid for his wars in the Low Countries. Rather than reducing the burden upon his people, the Sun King erected monuments throughout his lands in order to commemorate the glory that his actions had brought France. Manzel tells us that the king was presented to the French public as all-powerful, the head of an army that was perfectly disciplined. He was portrayed as the new Julius Caesar. Art soon appeared depicting Louis as a Roman Caesar, as well as Hercules on display with absolutely nothing but his club.
Manziel tells us that for Louis, war was not undertaken solely for the sake of conquests. The king enjoyed it, and war was considered a necessity to tame and satisfy the French nobility. There were ten times more officers in the army than in the royal households. War increased nobles' chances of promotion, money, fame, and emotional satisfaction. It justified to themselves and the public their prestige and privilege. In 1667, Saint Maurice had claimed that the king went to war to amuse all the young men of the court. The friction between the Dutch and French affected their competition overseas. France had arrived late to the party that was the European Age of Discovery. In 1534, Jacques Cartier claimed the area around the St. Lawrence Seaway. Samuel de Champlain would follow by exploring the Caribbean in 1601, before moving north to the present-day location of Quebec. Rather than setting up permanent colonies, the French set out exploring the area for the mythical Northwest Passage and managed to establish mutually beneficial trading arrangements with the locals. In the midst of the Franco-Dutch War, the French began their exploration of the Mississippi River Basin, eventually establishing the city of New Orleans three years after the Sun King's death. The claimed area became known as Louisiana, named specifically for King Louis XIV by Chevalier de la Salle, who had been empowered by the Sun King to establish forts around the Great Lakes, as well as to explore the western part of New France. Their lack of a colonized empire hindered them in the great power continental competition that was ongoing. Internal conflicts such as the Fronde had prevented the country from seizing large swaths of previously unknown territories. With only Quebec, Guadalupe, and Martinique as established cities in their possessions, Louis rapidly approved measures to catch up to pure nations. Unfortunately, he placed the task in the wrong person's hand. Nicolas Foucault served as the superintendent of finances in France from 1653 until 1661. He used the office almost exclusively to line his own pockets. Only 35 to 40 percent of all tax revenue escaped his greedy clutches. Prior to his rise within government, he had been a shareholder in the absurdly profitable East India Company, and thus understood how lucrative overseas markets could be. Rather than expanding France's influence in the New World, Foucault set up a hidden parallel state within the Sun King's orbit. Rather than claiming territories, Foucault focused on having his privateers loot more established operations. The plunder that came with such actions was significantly easier to disguise. After his guilt was established, oddly enough by a mistress who found his master plan hidden behind a mirror, the king utilized the musketeers for the arrest. In fact, the man in charge of serving the warrant 
would go on to become the inspiration for the D'Artagnan character in Alexander Dumas's masterpiece. Interestingly enough, Foucault rotted away within the Bastille, nearby a man locked in an iron mask, who in turn became the inspiration for another famous character, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Louis decided to redirect rather than disband Foucault's operations. With their mission changed, the French privateers managed to claim a portion of Hispaniola, which they initially named Saint-Dominique. Today, the land goes by the name of Haiti, and it became by far and away the most lucrative of all French colonial possessions. Unfortunately, the entire operation depended upon slavery to survive, and thus France stepped back from what had been their moral high ground by passing the Code Noir, or Black Codes, in order to lay down the legal basis for slavery within the French Empire. The Library of Congress points out that the Code's 60 articles regulated the life, death, purchase, religion, and treatment of slaves by their masters in all French colonies. It forcibly baptized slaves and obligated their masters to educate them in accordance with the Catholic faith. It wasn't all terrible, as the laws prohibited masters from making their slaves work on Sundays as well as religious holidays. It also required that slaves be clothed and fed and taken care of when sick. It prohibited slaves from owning property and stated that they had no legal capacity while also governing their marriages, burials, punishments, and the conditions they had to meet in order to gain their freedom. The codes marked the road that was followed by hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of men, women, and children whose destiny was shaped by the French so as to leave no trace of their passing from birth to death. the new world offered up new solutions to old problems. For instance, Louis could have expelled the French Huguenots to the new world, but he refused in an effort to ensure that their ideas wouldn't spread with them. Above all, he wished that new France would remain Catholic. At most, 10,000 Frenchmen crossed the Atlantic to begin a new life. For comparison's sake, at least 100,000 came from Spain, and another 350,000 from England. The lack of Frenchmen meant that Louisiana as a French colony wouldn't have survived without the peculiar institution of slavery. The French philosopher Voltaire wrote that the Black Code only serves to show that the legal scholars consulted by Louis XIV had no ideas regarding human rights. A large portion of the code was devoted to ensuring that the residents of Haiti and subsequently all French lands were properly raised Catholic. In addition to slaves, settlers, and lines of commerce, Louis exported Europe's religious wars to the New World. French lands were dominated by Catholics. The Dutch, who controlled what would become New York, were pure Calvinist Protestants 
while the English set up a number of religiously diverse Protestant communities settled by groups which had originally fled from British religious persecution. Further expansion required a strong navy, something that Louis was never able to fully achieve. At this time, the French navy remained dependent upon prisoners to row their galleys, and in 1669, Louis set about modernizing his ships by raising the navy's budget from 300,000 livres per year to more than 10 million. 110 new warships were constructed, with the force peaking at 258 ships by the 1680s. Louis purchased the port city of Dunkirk for a rock-bottom price from his perpetually broke cousin, Charles II. That gave the French a commercial and military port in the north. Louis then poured money into the southern port city of Marseille, which remains today the second most populous city in all of France. Louis was a stickler on religion, but accepted Marseille's cosmopolitan nature in his never-ending search for revenue. Marseille became the key connection for trade with the Muslim Ottoman Empire. Manzel explains that the city began to attract Muslims, Armenians, and Jews from the Ottoman Empire. Armenians brought knowledge of the silk trade, and in 1672 founded the first café in France and a printing press. Workmen produced soap, fabrics, shoes, and hats for export, mainly to the Ottoman Empire and North Africa. Louis didn't begin the alliance between the French and Ottoman empires. That honor belongs to the 16th century ruler Francis I who put aside his religious differences with Sultan Suleiman I in order to build the first non-ideological alliance between a Christian and Muslim state. The alliance would survive for nearly 250 years and played a huge part in the Sun King's downfall, something that we will explore in our final episode. Marseille gave Louis XIV a connection for what appeared to be unlimited commercial expansion. It also became the transit point for the slaves that were then transited to the Americas or pressed into forced service on behalf of the French Navy. In addition to the Middle East, Louis entertained guests from as far away as Siam. Louis remarked to that civilization's ambassador that France was not a country, but a world where everything was possible. Its people were not humans, but angels. Louis ensured that religious iconography was ever present during these cultural encounters. As Louis sought the eventual conversion of these people to Catholicism, in addition to negotiating favorable trade relations. Tuesday became the official day for Louis to meet with foreign ambassadors. Regular appearances were made by ambassadors which hailed from Muscoy, the Ottoman Empire, Morocco, Algiers, Siam, Tunis, and Persia. French soft power emanated from the meetings as the dignitaries were shown the richest treats that France had to offer at Versailles. 
Catholicism was the beating heart of the French monarchy, with one missionary stating that Catholicism was the most suitable religion to enable the princes who profess it to reign with supreme authority because by its laws it obliges Christians to be faithful and very obedient to their sovereigns, or else they are damned. Expanding the faith was just another way to expand Louis's own influence and control. Religious conflicts in the New World led to the French-Indian confederations that opposed George Washington in the French-Indian War, as well as directly resulting in the founding of the city of Mobile, Alabama, and Detroit, Michigan as bulwarks against creeping British Protestantism. A similar story played out in Siam, where more than 1,000 French troops were lured across the Indian Ocean to Thailand by suggestions that the natives would convert. After the king of Siam lectured the French ambassador that he could not suddenly change the state religion of Buddhism, for as God diversified all works of nature, he wanted to do the same in matters of religion. In other words, he informed the French that God had always wanted to be worshipped by an infinite number of different religions. France's regular response to rejection in this era involved lashing out wildly with violence. Louis' obsession regarding foreign policy underwritten by war was unsustainable and ineffective. Soon, the French concept of terror was brought to the shores of Southeast Asia, as the French allied with the king's brother in order to bring forth an elephant army, introducing the Eastern Hemisphere to the French concept of a coup d'etat. Siam unwillingly became a French protectorate, and Louis deficit financed new forts as strategic points along the mouth of the Mekong River. Although the invasion forces proclaimed their desire to spread the work of Jesus Christ, it focused significantly more on commercial projects, clearly marking China as the next target for Louis' global ambitions. As was typically the case in War and Love, it didn't take long for the Sun King to pounce. His initial approach was once again hidden beneath the benevolent shroud of religion, sending highly educated Jesuits to the Chinese court. While the Chinese didn't care too much for the Jesuits' lord and savior, they were permitted to stay within China in order to share the wisdom behind Western medical advancements. In what was viewed as a stroke of luck, the missionaries were able to break the emperor of a dangerous fever with their supply of quinine. From 1698 onward, there was a steady flow of exchanges between the two lands which shared a love of absolutism, magnificence, hunting, literature, and science. The cross-cultural interactions were quite wide in breadth, as Italian painters were sent by France to decorate churches in Beijing, as well as to paint portraits of the Chinese court. Soon, Chinese gauze, silks, vases, liqueurs, and porcelain lined the cabinets of Versailles. These exchanges were established with regularity after 1683, which turned out to be the high point in Louis' reign, the moment when the Sun King was at its zenith. 
Of course, no one knew it at the time, but what rises must fall. Our last episode on the Sun King will merge his foreign policy with his domestic policy to highlight the mistakes that he made in the latter stages of his reign. Rather than beginning a new golden age, the Sun King's mistakes in pursuit of personal ambition serves as the beginning of the end of the French monarchy. For it is, as Buddha claimed, ambition is like love impatient both of delays and rivals. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.